This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Joshua Steiner began his career in politics working on the Dukakis campaign, then at the Clinton Treasury Department. He advised the Obama transition team regarding economic policy. After his government service, he became a managing director at Lazard Frere and went on to co-found Quadrangle Group with several of his partners from Lazard. At Quadrangle, they invested in both private and public companies with a focus on media and communications. In 2013, he joined Bloomberg as head of what is called Industry Verticals, a series of businesses that provide legal, tax, and government policy information to corporations, governments, and NGOs around the world. He joins me now for a closer look. I should mention that I'm on the board of Bloomberg LP, and of course, Bloomberg LP is the parent company of Bloomberg Radio. Mr. Steiner's opinions are his own. Josh, you talk to business leaders. How are they feeling about the general U.S. economy and possibility for growth? I think overall, Arthur, they're feeling remarkably positive. If you look at what's happened since the financial crisis, we've had really 10 years of expansion. And that's continuing for a whole variety of reasons having to do with relatively stable economic conditions, relatively low energy prices, driven partly, as you know, by the great expansion of fracking in the United States, and deregulation and lower taxes coming out of Washington. Isn't anybody worried about the deficit any longer? It's a really interesting question. The topic of the deficit, which, as you know, was at the forefront of a lot of discussions of economic policy, especially in Washington, really in the first part of this millennium, has faded from almost all the discussion as we thought about the tax cut. And groups that were traditionally very concerned about the size of the deficit, particularly conservatives, were willing to overlook that concern in the context of a really massive tax cut for both corporations and high-income individuals. I find that absolutely astonishing. The conversation is so markedly different from what it has been through the years uh, through the Clinton administration, uh, through the Obama administration. We've heard nothing except uh, deficit coming from the right, and today it's just vanished. I agree about the puzzlement as to why that's happened, although, as you well know, if you go back to the Reagan administration, that was a period of really greatly ballooning deficits and the size of the national debt, driven by increased military spending, lower taxes, and I think many conservatives came to believe that the economy could withstand that higher level of debt. And by the way, I think some of them believed that it was a good way to squeeze the domestic programs that they did not support. Well, tax cuts are clearly going to impact growth this year. The question in my mind is, what corporations are going to do with the windfall? I think it will drive some growth. I think most economists think that um, even a tax cut of quite significant size historically will have a relatively modest impact on overall growth. Taxes traditionally can have an impact on growth. The biggest impact, 
and a place where I think we need to spend more time thinking is about income distribution across it. That's not an argument for redistribution, but it's an honest observation about the fact that income inequality has become an increasingly acute problem in this country. Then to your question, the question is to what happens with the increased cash flow that's coming from lower taxes. I think we're going to see more of what we already have seen, which is dividend policy share repurchases. Hopefully, you'll see some of it going to higher wages, as evidenced by the Walmart announcement. And hopefully, you'll see more investment into capital spending and other kinds of infrastructure which this country needs. Congress gave only two weeks to get ready for the new tax regime, which is a surprisingly short period. I've got to believe that there are unintended consequences and collateral damage that have yet to be discovered. You know, I think one of the things that's most important for corporations is certainty. And if you're thinking about the really great executives, they're planning for a longer cycle and trying to anticipate where, how their market's evolving, what their customers will need, how they invest in the plant and the training for their workers that they need. So to your point, when you see a significant change come through in a very short period of time, it's hard for really good corporations to adjust quickly. That's why you're seeing some of them announcing very significant tax effects on their earnings for this year. And I think that's a surprise to many people. Josh, both you and I have been exposed to the world of private equity. Uh, Trump promised to end the carried interest exemption. It didn't make it into the tax bill. Is it conceivable that the private equity world has such incredible power that they could keep something that has been politically vilified now for over five years? Well, I'm not going to opine. I really don't have an opinion as to why it didn't make it into the tax bill. I will say the following. I think that there are a variety of aspects of the tax code which an impartial observer would look at and think, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not clear to me why that kind of income is being treated this way and something else that looks and feels very similar is being treated a different way. And I think what we're finding is that organizations, in some cases those that represent the private and equity industry, have pointed out that if you're going to change that, you probably should change other things which are similar. And as soon as you make that comparison, as soon as you expand the number of industries that would be affected by a change, it makes it much more difficult to make that change. Josh, when economists talk about the world economy, I keep seeing the phrase accelerating synchronized global growth. Is the global economic news really this good? Well, there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic. I think we're living through a period, as I mentioned, of relatively stable and in some cases declining commodity prices. That's such an important input to so many businesses. And the growth of the natural gas market in the United States, the fact that our oil industry has grown by so much, that's clearly lowered costs for U.S. companies and had an effect on the overall energy pricing levels throughout the world. That's a piece of it. What else has happened? We've had a period of relative stability, right? And if you think about the past you know, 20, 30 years, we were almost always facing some economic crisis someplace. So whether it was the Mexico crisis, whether it was an Asia crisis, whether it was obviously the great um, recession that took place in 2008, 2009, for the last 10 years, with the exception of the disruption associated with Brexit, there has been very little macroeconomic news that has been highly disruptive. All of that, I think, has led to a period of significant optimism in the business community. What's going to happen to global markets when 
central banks begin unwinding. One of the things that's happened, I think, in the central banks, both in the United States and at the ECB, which I find really encouraging and quite impressive how they've handled the transition, is far greater transparency. And, you know, the unwinding of quantitative easing is a perfect example. Um, the Fed has really forecast what they're going to do, let people know that it's coming, have given pretty clear guidelines as to the size of the unwinding and the pace at which it will take place. That has allowed markets to anticipate their actions, to adjust interest rates on a much more gradual basis, and I think has probably led people to be much less concerned about the unwinding than they would have been two years ago. But when it comes to financial regulatory rollbacks, I don't think anything has been changed since 2017 up to now. I think there are two things that are going on, both of which are significant. And just to be clear about my bias, I think overall the changes that were put in place um, in 2008, 2009, 2010, etc., have been real positive, both for the financial industry and for the overall economy. We've seen obviously much higher levels of capitalization in the banks. We've seen greater regulatory certainty, although there has been obviously a regulatory burden, which is meaningful for the financial institutions. But in the main, it's hard to argue that the financial industry isn't stronger today than it was before. Now what's happening? I think there are two pieces of it, and this is really indicative of what's going on in Washington more generally. First is on the regulatory side, and the question, as you know, is many aspects of Dodd-Frank, even many years after its passage, hadn't been promulgated into the fully refined regulations. There's going to be a question about whether those ultimately are clarified, and the ones that have been, whether some of them are going to be rolled back. On the legislative side, the House has um, indicated and in fact passed, I think, a version of a repeal or reform. The Senate is taking one up now. The Senate version is being considered on a relatively bipartisan basis, certainly in the context of most of things that are happening in Washington today. So there is some momentum for a legislative fix, and that's how they would articulate it to Dodd-Frank. The question is how aggressive they are going to be about that fix and whether, in fact, that fix is going to look and feel much more like of appeal than it is a question of nudging it around the edges. I certainly hope that if they're going to take something up, it will be defined by relatively modest fixes as opposed to anything close to a full-fledged repeal. Hopefully seems to be going in that direction. Now, Bloomberg government recently did a major story about the Pentagon and that they may soon face a problem rare for a government agency. Too much money and too little time to spend it. Can you explain that for our listeners? No. <laughs> <I'm> just... <laughs> That's great. That's the best answer I've had on any interview in several years. <laughs> I wish I were an expert on that one. I'm really not. I don't want to mislead people who are listening. That's a wonderful answer. A legislative priority for uh, 2018 is said to be crumbling infrastructure. Do you know whether anything is being planned in Congress, and is there any hope of funding? Well, I think there's a lot of discussion going on, and Gary Cohn, among others, has made it clear that he thinks this should be one of the highest priorities for 2018. You know, there's very widespread bipartisan support for increased infrastructure spending in the United States. Where will the money come from? Well, that's a very good question, Arthur. I think until the most recent tax cut, um, the anticipation was that the grand bargain would be around repatriation. You would allow corporations to bring back the money that they had offshore, bring it back at a lower tax rate than they would normally encounter, 
and used the proceeds of that to fund a very meaningful infrastructure program. There was a lot of discussion about what form it would take, whether an infrastructure bank would be the right thing to do. But that was the basic bargain that was in place until the tax cut was passed. I would say that um, it is a high legislative priority. Now the funding is much less clear than it would have been before. Treasury is experiencing a 7.5% cut in its staffing levels. And I have to believe that's true of other agencies. Have you noticed the lack of staff and whether it's been making getting information more difficult or, or perhaps is the government overstaffed? Well, I think there are two different levels to think about this. The first is the number of political appointees who have been nominated and confirmed. And the straight facts on that is fewer people have been both nominated and confirmed than previous administrations. I think that is a problem. Treasury, along with many other government agencies and departments, has really a spectacularly strong career staff, and they do a remarkable job, and they are one of the reasons why our government effectuates such important transitions as the ones between administrations so effectively. Having said that, there is a need for political leadership, and the absence of that political leadership um, at the departments, I think, is a problem for the government. Josh, in terms of cybersecurity, what do you regard to be the greatest threats to business, and how much of the problem uh, are from state-sponsored hackers? So I think, Arthur, there are really three different categories of threats that I think are very meaningful and which I know occupy the time and energy of almost any serious CEO. The first, as you said, are state-sponsored hackers. And we see that coming out of North Korea, we've seen that coming out of China, we've seen that coming out of Russia. All of them have enormous resources at their disposal, work with relative impunity from law enforcement around the world, and that's a real concern. The second is what I would consider organized crime. There are clearly a growing number of people who recognize that this is an opportunity for ill-gotten gains, and we can see what they've been doing in order to try to ransom people's networks and systems in exchange often for Bitcoin or for other forms of remuneration. The third, which gets less discussion, which I think actually is ultimately um, a very real threat, and you've seen it in terms of the government, is the internal threat. So Edward Snowden and others, people who've done enormous damage to our national security, those weren't external hackers. Those were internal employees who had a grudge or had a political agenda or some other reason for doing real damage either to a corporation or to our national security. All three are real threats. The last one probably gets less discussion than it should. You mentioned Bitcoin, Josh. Do you believe that cryptocurrency is going to be an increasingly relevant part of our financial picture in, over the course of the next five years? I think the answer to that is yes. And then I think the question is the use case. So let's differentiate a little bit from um, the purpose, which is in one case a store of value. I think people are looking for a way to store value, and they have been for millennia. The most obvious choice for people throughout the ages was gold. What's the attraction of gold? It's really twofold. The chemical qualities of gold means it doesn't deteriorate. Unlike metals which rust, gold maintains its property and its weight despite whatever conditions it's housed in. That's made it a very attractive store of value along with the fact that there's perceived to be a limited quantity available on the earth. People are looking for an alternative, especially people in economies where there's a risk of hyperinflation or where there's a risk of the government seizing your assets. And of course, there are bad actors who are looking for a way to exchange um, 
form of remuneration for those ill-gotten goods. So I think the first thing is store value. I think people are going to continue to look at it. The second question, though, is really as a form of currency. Why are people interested in that? Well, as you know, the financial system as it's developed, partly because of the need for regulation, makes it very cumbersome in many cases to transfer value from one person to another. People are looking for a more efficient way to do that. And it's possible cryptocurrency will be that form, or it's possible that its introduction will drive the financial institution to make it easier to do it along more traditional ways. That's important. So I think on cryptocurrencies, there are at least two plausible use cases which are important. And I would differentiate cryptocurrency from blockchain, the underlying technology. The underlying technology of blockchain may have a whole series of uses which have nothing to do with cryptocurrency. What's your take on the FCC ending net neutrality? Was there a good reason for this? Well, you, I think this is very much in the category, and I put the tax cut in the same thing as the fact that elections have consequences. The election of President Trump and the fact that the Republicans won both houses of Congress have led them to be in favor of a meaningfully diminished regulatory regime in Washington. And their view is that there is enough competition within the broadband market by virtue of the fact that you have the cable companies, you have the telco companies, and in most markets you have at least two or three wireless companies that are offering wireless broadband, that there's sufficient competition that the government doesn't need to be regulating them to prevent the kinds of actions that would lead to discriminatory behavior. Obviously, traditionally, the FCC, and I would think many Democrats, have argued no, that these are closer to utilities. And in fact, you do need to regulate them because the barriers to entry are so great, the capital that's invested is so large, the franchises that they've been granted in order to do this, either through the spectrum or the rights to dig up the streets, mean they're closer to utility. There are reasonable arguments on both sides on this one, and this very much falls into the category of when the Republicans have won, as I said, both houses of Congress and the and the White House, you shouldn't expect a change in the regulatory regime. Josh, what do business leaders want the government to be doing to protect from cyber attacks from state-sponsored actors? I think the most important thing to start with is really the right form of open communication. And one of the things that we've seen is that one small group of businesses may be threatened by an assault. They learn about it sooner than others, or the government may become aware of an assault that's taking place in a different part of the world. We need to create an environment where that information sharing can be done in a safe and secure way. Companies are obviously appropriately concerned about exposing their vulnerabilities. They want to be sure that if they do so, it's done in a way that's appropriate with the law enforcement communities and their other regulatory responsibilities. And they want to make sure that the government is alerting them to things that they need to know about in advance. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Mark Warner introduced legislation targeting credit companies like Equifax that would enforce penalties for credit companies whose data was stolen. There are no Republican co-sponsors. What would Congress do to mitigate the damage of data breaches for consumers? Well, I think that what we're recognizing are a couple of things. First is that as more and more of individual information is stored by more and more companies, the responsibility of those companies have increased. And if you went to a CEO of any major company 10, 15 years ago and said to them, what are your top concerns? Cyber just wouldn't be on the list. So I think the good news today relative to 10 or 15 years ago is that the market is recognizing the importance of this. Why? 
because there's a very damaging impact to those companies in terms of their reputation, in terms of their share price, and under existing law, in terms of their legal responsibilities and their exposure. So we've already seen, I think, meaningful movement. As to the right thing to do beyond that, I think it's a question of ensuring that those penalties are aligned if we decide to do them with, in fact, the mistakes that are being made. The reality is these are hard business challenges to protect that information. We want to be sure that companies are focused on it appropriately, that they're taking the right measures to safeguard it, and we have to recognize that mistakes are going to be made by people, and as you mentioned before, that state actors and other people are going to be going after them very vigorously. All of us enjoy efficiencies of having our data stored everywhere, but at what point does privacy become the real issue? Well, I think for everybody, those are choices that they're going to end up making partly as individuals, um, obviously within the regulatory framework that the government has imposed. I think each of us has friends who've made choices to participate more or less actively on social media, to use different kinds of password protection services or not because they're concerned about the capacity of those to get hit. People choose whether they want to do more or less of their banking online. All of those are choices which are available to consumers within the existing rubric. And the government's job, I think, is to ensure that people's privacy is being protected. The government has a responsibility to help enforce the actions which are necessary to ensure that corporations are living up to their regulatory environments. And a portion of it's going to fall on all of us as individuals to make choices that make sense for each of us as we balance efficiency and communication against our desire for privacy. Government's required to take comments from the public on every proposed policy change, but recently the FCC was overwhelmed with fake comments on the net neutrality issue. Is this the way it's going throughout uh, government, and do we need take to go back to writing letters? Well, I hope we don't go back to writing letters only because based on my children's penmanship, they would never get read. <laughs> I would say, however, that the government, in some cases, is at the bleeding edge of, of technological change and sometimes is a bit of a laggard. And what we're seeing now is that in this respect, they are suffering from something that we were well aware of in the broader environment several years before. So the same phenomenon that you've seen in a variety of social media, where there's a whole variety of bots and other kinds of technological tools which are allowing stories to be pushed out and ways to influence people in social media, that's now being applied into a new context and, as you said, into the regulatory comment phase of their process. That's certainly concerning. They're going to need to start to provide the same kinds of tools and protections that companies are beginning to think about using themselves. Turning to politics, you were part of both the Clinton and Obama transition teams. and. You have to ask whether chaos is, is normal and how much is normal and how much of your early political experience was helpful to you in your present job. Well, I certainly don't want to think that I was operating in a chaotic environment and therefore it's relevant to life here at Bloomberg. Happily, life at Bloomberg is pretty regimented and organized, entrepreneurial, but nevertheless certainly not chaotic. Look, I think um, transitions play a very important function within our democratic process and we are virtually unique um, within major democracies in terms of how we approach it. That period of time between the election and the inaugural allows the new president to organize his or her team in a way that will ensure that the effective functioning of government continues. Now, in reality, what happens? You know, for the first <clears throat> several weeks and months, 
most people's focus is on getting a job. There are a lot of people happily who would like to serve in a new administration, and they're spending time trying to figure out what's the right job. The new president's team is trying to think about who belongs in which position. That's the first phase of it. It's very understandable and I think highly appropriate. The second phase of the transition is once that leadership has been identified, they're obviously focused on preparing for their confirmation hearings, and they're focused on getting their own teams together, and they can also turn their attention to thinking about policy, and most importantly, how do they prepare for the president's first budget, and thinking about the major foreign policy initiatives that the president wants to undertake. It's really a two-phase transition, helping people think about what jobs make sense, and then helping those people get confirmed, put their teams together, and begin to develop policies. I think it works pretty well. He had a career in government with Presidents Clinton and Obama. Then he had a second career as a private equity investor with Lazard Frere and his own firm, the Quadrangle Group. He brought all that experience to Bloomberg in 2013 to oversee Bloomberg Industry Verticals, web-based services that provide legal, tax, and other government information to professionals around the world. And he also oversees the venture capital fund, Bloomberg Beta. Joshua Steiner, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the program or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. I'm Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour. 